All right, praise God, you guys. We've been back in the book of Revelation on Sundays. We'll actually be in that book a little bit today, just a little bit. Uh, but we're having a great time. Uh, this is a topical study called God Against the Demon Gods. And it's a war that you need to understand, that you need to, you need to realize what's going on all around you. There's a spiritual war going on. And what, what does that spiritual war entail? And how do you fit into it? I think all this is very, very uh, important that, that we get it, that we understand it. Uh, before I was a Christian, I was very ignorant to the spiritual war that's going on. And do you realize when the Bible talks about gods, what do you think they're talking about? When God is delivering his people with Egypt from Egypt, what's going on there? When God talks about gods, sometimes not always in the negative sense, uh, but sometimes in the very negative sense, what, what, what is the reference? What, what's actually happening there? And how do we wrap our brains around it? Uh, us mere mortals are ignorant often of the spiritual war that is going on all around us. We know in the book of Daniel, when Daniel had prayed and cried out to the Lord for an answer, that the angel was delayed because he was at war with another angel and was held up for 21 days. You know that, right? I think that's in around chapter 10 of the book of Daniel. And he was delayed because he was at war with the prince of Persia. And many believe that, uh, and I believe, I believe it's biblical, that there are certain principalities over certain nations. And the prince of Persia was at war uh, with uh, the angel that was going to Daniel. And it was a 21-day uh, battle until he got help from another powerful angel from Michael. And it's really interesting when you realize what's going on in the heavenlies. It's like, when you look at other creatures, whether it's the jungle or the wilderness, the forest, there's wars, battles. You look at humans, there's battles. It shouldn't shock us that there are battles in the spiritual realm, although we don't always understand exactly what is entailed in each battle. We do know there's a spiritual war afoot, and that affects us. And the Bible talks a lot about this spiritual war. And before I was a Christian, I knew there was something bigger than me. I think that was pretty obvious by looking at nature, you know. I couldn't deny there was something way beyond me. But I ventured into the occult. I won't give my testimony here. I've done that a few times through the course of pastoring this fellowship. But I was anti-Christ. And I was kind of agnostic slash atheist, you know. I believe there was something quite out, something out there, but I didn't know what it was. And I didn't want it to be the God of creation. I certainly didn't want it to be the biblical God. I didn't want it to be a God that was going to tell me what to do because, of course, uh, I wanted to be my own little God, you know. I wouldn't have described it that way, but that's exactly what was going on in my life, you know, whether it had to do with, uh, you know, what music I was listening to, my sexuality, uh, the drugs I was taking, all those things when I was 16, 17 years old. Those were defining times in my lives, my life. Uh, and as a result of getting into books on the power of the subconscious mind uh, by the, uh, Maxwell Maltz and Joseph Murphy, uh, the power of the subconscious mind was named one of the books, and Psycho-Cybernetics, the other, I began programming my subconscious mind through visualizing success and all that. And guess what? That stuff works to a degree, but I opened myself to demonic forces, and that's why it worked. Uh, before I knew it, I was having my covers ripped down and turning sideways in my bed, sliding down my bed, uh, Billie Eilish, 
her big album that came out a couple years back was all based on those kinds of, she's the biggest female artist right now. I think she has close to, if not, well, she's huge. Let's just say that. And uh, she said her whole first album was about those experiences and they, her, those experiences influenced her songs. Yeah, you bet they did. I was getting all kinds of music and melodies and lyrics and everything else uh, through that. And when you look at the album, you open up her, you know, her production with that first album, her eyes are rolled up in her head, you know, she's, you know, that paralysis she talks about. And sometimes that's called demon in the bedroom experience. A number of you have experienced that, you know, Satan is very real. And I don't want to get into the details, but I wrote a lot of songs and some of you've heard some of those lyrics. They're way beyond my intellect at the time. And to, the, to this day, those lyrics are still way beyond my intellect. I couldn't sit down and write some of those songs that I wrote before. Uh, they, words I didn't even know, and they all fit perfectly. Lyrics like treacherous, uh, treacherous meadows touched by the devil, burdened with calamity and subdued by disease, and just things I had to look up in the dictionary at times as a 16-year-old kid, 17-year-old kid. But uh, I don't want to go on all, to that, all into that, but I do want to say, hey, there is a spiritual war. Because in the midst of my experience, I realized, man, I'm in touch with something really evil, in a, and it's spiritual evil, and I don't believe in spiritual evil. I don't believe in the devil. Because if I believe in the devil, then i got to believe in God. But guess what? I, I had to bow the knee to the Lord. I had to realize, you know what? This is real. I can't deny it. The evidence is all pointing because my songs were pro-Satan, and my songs were anti-Christ. And I really didn't have to look for who the true God was. I knew that all my music was anti the God of Bible. And as soon as I opened this book, like a burst of light, man, the words just jumped off the pages because they explained that there is a spiritual war going on between God and Satan, between the demonic realm and the angelic realm. And not a war where God is, you know, where you're held, you know, wondering who's going to win. God's going to win. He could have wiped out Satan from the very get-go, right? He could have just squished him like a bug, man, and all the, de- the, all the fallen angels, all the demons, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't do that was because uh, he wanted to operate. He was going to let Satan manifest that rebellion among the human race to see who would follow, kind of like a, a massive cosmic sting operation, you know? Who's going to follow because then I'm going to have the great white throne judgment. I'm going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, and so forth. And it's really a pretty brilliant plan on God's part, because in the end, he wants those who love him. Amen? The greatest commandment, Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, all your strength, your whole mind. Amen? So when we look at Scripture in the very beginning, if you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Here they are in the Garden of Eden. Perfect. Beautiful. Yet there's a malevolent being there. And we read in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now some understand the serpent to simply be a wise creature that was upright and that Satan used the serpent. Others understand that the serpent is Satan in the garden. He's being described, uh, you know, there, okay? Uh, and there's some good evidences on both sides. I'm not going to get into that issue because we'd spend a lot of time on that. But uh, it's interesting because at the very least, Satan is identified with, with the serpent throughout the rest of Scripture. And in verse 2, and it's not just some animal, you know? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, 
from the, tree, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Now notice he's dialoguing with her. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He starts a dialogue with, she's, you know, with her. One thing you don't want to do is get in a dialogue with the devil. Okay? He's far smarter than any of us. Amen? You don't want to have a long conversation with Satan and demonic entities. I've dealt with people that have been possessed, people that have been brought to the fellowship by people that knew they were possessed, people that brought me over to other places where people are possessed. And a lot of times it starts from getting involved in occult activity, occult books, occult behavior, you know, new age books, seeking spirit guides through meditation and what have you. It's a very, very real realm. But look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Huh. Or you will die. It's interesting because we don't see where the Lord says you shall not eat from it or touch it. She kind of, maybe Adam, uh, we, she, we see her say that, but we don't see God say that. So maybe Adam said, don't even get near it. Don't, don't touch it. He said, don't eat. Yes. But we don't ever see him say, don't touch it. Okay. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, and <laughs> first, the serpent says what? Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. First, in verse one, he gets her to doubt God's word. God's saying you should eat from any tree of the garden. It's kind of a, like, like what's the reasoning behind that? And obviously, God gives us commands because he cares about us. He loves us, amen? What's going to happen when Eve partakes of this tree? What's going to happen to her? She's going to die. She's going to die the very day she eats. She dies spiritually. She's separated from God. Then physical death sets in as well. She gives to her husband who also is with her and he eats. But now we read, huh, it's quite interesting. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you, shall, you surely will not die. Now instead of getting her to, or casting doubt on God's word, now it's just an direct assault and denial of God's word. So Satan will start by trying to get you to doubt God's word. Then he will go after the jugular and just try to get you to deny God's word because then you don't have God's love letter to you. You don't have the light of God's truth. You don't have his message to us, the word of God. Verse five, for God knows that in the days you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So now he tempts her by saying, basically he's saying God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be God too. And that's a big part of the deception. He doesn't want you to understand and know that you can become God. And all you have to do is eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Take the forbidden fruit and your eyes will be open and you'll be God. And he says, you surely shall not die. He denies that she will die. Verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was detestable, I'm sorry, was desirable, she should have saw it as detestable, it was desirable to make one wise. She took from it fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on there, and we could just spend the whole time in chapter 3 and just discussing it, but I want to go to a lot of it. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation as we look at this spiritual war that we're in. And we want to really understand what's going on here because the serpent here, is at the very least an agent of Satan. And there's three major lies going on here. First of all, she's told that she surely will what? Not what? Die. Okay? That's a lie. 
There, and really, there's two lies there. In one fill, one swoop, man, Satan gets her, is denying the word of God, saying the word of God's a lie, and you will not die, right? Then he lets her know that by tapping into the tree of knowledge, that she will realize her divinity by tra- tapping into this forbidden knowledge. Tapping into forbidden knowledge to become wise is another lie because in the name of becoming wise, she would become blinded and ignorant. She'd become aware of her sin. Satan, it's a half truth. Yes, you're gonna become wise because guess what? As soon as you sin, you're gonna know the difference between good and evil because you've just experienced evil for the first time, rebelling against God. But that's not the way she thought she was going to become wise, is it? No, she thought she was gonna become like God. And she certainly didn't become God. And by the way, Satan uses the same lies over and over and over again because they work. They work. He's very wise. Right from the very get-go, he knows what buttons to push. He does. And he seeks to push your buttons. He seeks to tempt you. He seeks to uh, deceive you in many ways. What ways do you realize, man, this is an old trick. I've seen that Satan uses the Bible, and this is one he tries to use against me. And he knows all of our weaknesses, you know? It's like, you think, ha- people, you think having information in the cloud is great because you can access things about people and everything else these days? Well, Satan's had way beyond a computer cloud to access through the years. And he's probably got access to records on you and your lineage and your history and everything else that's at his fingertips. And he knows what works on you. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything like God. But he, he knows your, your aunt's name. He knows your uncle's name. You know how those clairvoyants, psychics, you know, a lot of them are frauds. Some of them, the ones that are successful, those are the ones that are the biggest, they're all, they're all bad. But those are the ones you need to be concerned about the most because when they know something about Uncle Fred that nobody else could know, well, demons know. And we have to be very, very weary. In fact, it's interesting, these same lies are used today in the most popular religious movement in Hollywood, a lot of the music industry, in the new, what's called the New Age movement and the New Spirituality. Because what's taught, what's common today and what a lot of Hollywood people believe and they purvey in their interviews and it's spread throughout our country is you shall not surely die. You just get repackaged, reincarnated, become very popular. That's many people in Hollywood. I was princess so-and-so. I was prince so-and-so. They're never the janitor, you know. They're never the guy that cleaned the stables. You know, they're always some prince or princess. Y'all can't be princes and princes in the past, princess and princess in the past. Now, it's quite crazy because not only that, the Bible warns about not getting into books that exalt the occult and promote the occult and teach the occult. The Bible warns about doctrines of demons and seducing spirits. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Holy Spirit speaks expressly that in latter days some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. These, they have doctrines. They have teachings. And they're seducing spirits. That's why you have to be careful with a lot of music. Satan was a musician in the past. The angels were, many of them, if not all of them, musical entities. In Ezekiel chapter 28, it says of Satan that he profaned his sanctuaries. Those are places of worship. In Isaiah chapter 14, it says, you know, Lucifer was cast down, and it says he was cast down, and he'll be thrown in the pit eventually, and his music he brought with him. 
He was cast down with his music. Isn't that interesting? Seducing spirits, doctrines of demons. Watch what you plug your heart and your mind into. Guard your heart. The Bible says guard it with all diligence because out of the heart, it says in Proverbs 4, you know, come the issues or the spring of life. So we have to be on guard. And we have to be on guard in where we're getting our information. Here, the serpent gives a lie. God's word is not really true. That's a lie. He gives another lie. You can tap into the occult and you'll be rewarded. Oh, you'll be rewarded temporally to a degree. Some people will be. There's, there's pleasure and sin for a season. Many, many people have gotten uh, rich and powerful in the music industry, if you've studied it, through practicing occult activity and so forth. But many others are in, have went into mental hospitals. A lot of people that are in mental hospitals are there as a result of, can someone go out there and cast that demon out of that guy? Just kidding. I'm just teasing. <laughs> Oh, that never happens, you know? I think one other time. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see how, how it goes for a minute, and then we'll deal with it. Anyway, can you guys can still all hear me, right? Yes. All right. Praise God. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so look at the lies that are repeated. You shall not die. Anyway, does Hollywood say, oh, yeah, the Bible's the word of God, man. We need to, you know, follow with the Lord's word. Do they say that? No, they're against the word of God. They, they, they claim we're reincarnated. I'm talking about the New Age movement. They claim, oh, yeah, we're all reincarnated. And, you know, we just uh, go from person to person. And then guess what else? They tap into occult knowledge. Palm reading, seances, astrology, all these different things, you know. And Lord, be with, be with Mark as he lovingly confronts whoever is making all that noise. You know, other people have got to do their thing too. So, you know, bless them. But uh, so reincarnation. Thou shalt surely die. The occult, seances, astrology, you know, channelers, fortune tellers, getting your palm read. Stay away from all that, man. That's garbage. That's forbidden in the scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. The Lord says to the Jews, when you go into the promised land, thou shalt not learn to do after the practices or the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who practices omens and, you know, witchcraft, uh, contacts mediums, necromancers, those who contact the dead, wizards. All that stuff is forbidden by the Lord to protect us, Okay. And finally, you know, you will be as God. That's what's taught today commonly is that we are becoming God, you know. We're, we're evolving to Godhood in the New Age movement. And by the way, keep in mind, this is very interesting. The Gnostics in the second century after Christ were the predominant threat to the, thank you very much, Mark, were the predominant threat to the early Christian church. Amen. They were the predominant threat. And guess what? Guess where they got a lot of their doctrines? Admittedly, they believed, and many, we have the Gnostic Gospels now that were written by the Gnostics. And when you look at the Gnostic Gospels that they teach, a lot of them just teach very clearly that the serpent in Eden was the hero. That Yahweh, the God who said not to listen to the serpent, he's the one that's evil. The Demiurge, they called him. You know, the Demiurge is the one who created the physical universe. And the Gnostics believe that everything physical was evil because it was created by the Demiurge. The creator of the physical universe was evil. And Sophia channeled the serpent to free Eve and Adam from these physical bodies that trap our divinity. It's just a big lie. So in Gnosticism, and by the way, you had to be very careful in the first century because the Gnostics claimed to be the true Christians. 
Now they had to, they were denying the God of the Old Testament, which is pretty ridiculous to claim to be the true Christians, right? Because Jesus is, who Jesus is, is all based on the Old Testament prophecies, amen? So it doesn't make any sense. And when you read the Gnostic Gospels, they're not narratives like we read, uh, historical narratives about who Jesus is. They're all fancy full. Jesus is like super giant, big, and you know, all these weird things. That's, it's not, they're not historical documents. They're Johnny-come-lately false Gospels. But you know what? Those same doctrines I'm talking about right now were being promoted in Gnosticism. And the early church fathers like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Tertullian, and other church fathers spoke strongly and warned the church against Gnosticism. They wrote a lot of pages. A lot of what we know about Gnosticism comes from their writings. In fact, some people would look at their writings and say, because didn't, they didn't find the Gnostic Gospels until like 1947. So people would look at what the early church fathers wrote and they said, they couldn't have really believed this stuff. And then guess what? The Gnostic Gospels were found and discovered. And it's like, ooh, they did believe this stuff. Quite bizarre. So now, guess what? You have Satanists like Aleister Crowley who's influenced Hollywood and the music industry and so forth. He did what he called the Gnostic Mass. Madame Blavatsky, the founder of Theosophy, which was very popular and still influences the United Nations. And their, their publishing company was Lucifer Publishing, became Lucis Trust, which is influencing the UN to this day. Uh, Blavatsky's talked about how Lucifer is the liberator and Satan is the redeemer. And she was a Gnostic. And these are the, you know, form the cornerstones of the New Age movement today. These people I'm talking about and the occult movement of, of the day. And they were Gnostics. So you can draw a line right from Genesis chapter 3 to what's going on in the world right now in the New Age movement and the new spirituality. Really mind-blowing when you think about it. So what happens here is Eve falls. Now is God like, man, you know what? I can't believe I created you. I'm going to wipe everybody out just blow up the earth and start over. No, he knew this was going to happen before creation, amen? And he had a plan all along. And the plan was to send his son into the world to redeem us. So there ends up being a curse on the earth where thorns, they're in the garden and thorns and thistles come up and they're booted out of the garden and cherubim are put around the tree of life so they won't partake of it. But there's an amazing promise called the Proto-Evangelium. Now, Proto-Evangelium proto literally means, you know, it, it really speaks of the first, you know, gospel. Proto, the first, and then Evangelium, the, the gospel. The first time the good news is shared, and it's right in chapter 3, right after the fall, in verse 15. Let's look at it. Chapter 3, verse 15. The Lord says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, he's talking to the serpent here. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the seed of the woman is going to come and give Satan a death blow on the head. However, Satan is going to give him a heel blow. Bam. His heel is going to be bruised. I used to think that was strictly metaphorical. A picture of how Satan will be just destroyed in the end and head blow, meaning just destroyed. He'll be thrown in the lake of fire forever. Revelation 20, verse 10. And Jesus, his heel will be wounded. He'll be killed, but he'll rise from the dead. Amen? So you look at that, you're like, yeah, that makes total sense. Because Jesus 
descended from obviously he became a man, amen? As God, he became a man. And he became a man and took human flesh, the Bible says, in Hebrews chapter 2, to over, so people that had the fear of death and the fear of the devil, the devil who was running death, the operation of death, would be overcome. Now the Bible says, let this mind be set be in you, which is, was also in Christ Jesus. And although he existed, it says, in very nature God, as God. This is in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Even though he existed in his very nature as God, he didn't consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. But it says he made himself nothing, taking upon himself the very nature of a servant. Wow. And being found in the form of a man, it says, he humbled himself to, point, to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore it says God has given the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in hell too. That's what's going to happen someday, right? To the glory of God the Father. So that's where this whole thing is headed. Everything in history, all of human history is headed to, headed to the, the ground. Everybody's going to kneel down and bow on heaven or on earth or under the earth. Everything's going there. You're going to be bowing down before Jesus. You're going to, it says everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone is going to. The question is, is where are you going to be doing it? I want to be doing it in God's presence. Amen? How about you? Now, it's interesting because we see this is profound what we read here. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Then I learned that in forensic science, because I just thought this is just radical metaphor of a picture of what's going to happen when Jesus would come and die on the cross and free us from our sins and then ultimately destroy Satan in the end. But guess what? It's also quite literal with regard to Jesus. Because I shared with you in a message I did a year or so ago in Psalm 22, where it talks about Jesus' hands and feet being pierced, you know, like 900 years before it actually happened when they weren't crucifying people in those days. But David is referring to Jesus, his hands and feet being pierced 900 years before they were even crucifying people. Prophecy is powerful, isn't it? Now, it's interesting because I learned that in forensic science, when the criminologists will study a crime scene, they could tell when a body has been moved. How can you tell that a body's been moved? By the bruising. Because if you're dead for some period of time, the bruise will form at your lowest extremity that's touching the ground. So if you're on your side and, the, and you die on your side and someone murders you and there's evidence because, you know, and you're on your side and, uh, and you sit there for some time, the bruise is going to be on your arm or your elbow that's on the ground or whatever's on the ground, your arm, parts of your leg. Now, if they come back a couple hours later and try to hide you somewhere else, make it look like you died by, you know, uh, you know, cleaning, the, you know, cleaning the, something off the roof and put, lay you in the backyard and the bruising is in the wrong places, they realize somebody moved his body. Well, what was the lowest extremity of Jesus when he died on the cross? His feet and his heel. Literally, his heel would be, what's the lowest extremity against a surface? That's where the bruise would form. On his heel. Satan bruises his heel. Literally. 
add metaphorically because he rose from the dead. Amen? Pretty profound when you think about it, you know? And I don't think God's like, oh, wow, good job, Joe. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. No, he prophesied it. We're just discovering what he said, right? We're saying, wow, Lord, it's quite amazing, you know? But it's interesting because we have this battle that's mentioned now, a very serious battle that's going on, a spiritual war. Now, Jesus is referring to this incident because Adam and Eve were basically killed spiritually at this point, and physically they'd end up dying later. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. Right back here it started. He's the father of lying. Amen? He was a murderer from the beginning, he said. And he did not remain in the truth. In other words, there was a time when Satan was in the truth as an angel. But when you read Isaiah chapter 14 and you read Ezekiel 28, one talking about the king of Babylon, one talking about the king of Tyre, but then going beyond the king of Babylon and going beyond the king of Tyre and addressing the spiritual principalities that are behind them, which the scriptures do at times. We see that over and over again in scripture where God addresses the principality that is using an entity as perhaps here in Genesis 3. If you take the view that the serpent is being used by Satan and not Satan himself. And because the language that's used in Isaiah 14 goes way beyond the king of Babylon. The language that's used in Ezekiel chapter 28 goes way beyond the king of Tyre. Because in Isaiah chapter 14, he said, you exalted yourself above the stars of God. And stars are angels. He wanted to be worshipped. And you, and you wanted to be like the most high God. He wanted to become God. It worked with him. So he said, hey, I'll tell Eve the same thing I fell for. I lied to myself. Now I'll lie to her. You can become God. And it's interesting. Because God apportioned uh, angelic leaders over the nations. And they're actually called gods. Now, when somebody's called a god sometimes in the Bible, that's separate than the one true God. You have to always make the distinction we're not talking about the one true God, and we're not talking about anything that's in the class of the one true God. God has a council of entities, like the 24 elders, for instance, and some of them even petition or speak to him. You have fallen angels like Satan wanting to tempt Job, and God says, if you consider my servant Job, you have a lying spirit or a demon saying, can I, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of a specific prophet. And you have these, these uh, authorities over these nations, and I wish I had time to go to the, all these different scriptures I'm mentioning, but uh, some believe there's a second revolt. Some believe this is the first revolt, and the second revolt is in Genesis chapter 6, when uh, it talks about the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men, right? And then the Nephilim were there. And some believe the third revolt happened uh, with the gods or those who were given authority, like the prince of Persia, for instance, would be perhaps a, one of these entities that had authority and then rebelled against God. Well, I'd see a, if there's three, then there's you know, perhaps even four, because in Revelation you have a rebellion, but I believe that's probably of already fallen entities that are cast down to the earth in Revelation chapter 12 that have no more access to heaven. When Satan is cast down, he's accused of brethren, but now he can't go and accuse anymore. So it says, woe to the earth because he's come down to you, right? And he's ticked off, he's angry, coming with great wrath. That's in the middle of the tribulation period. Now it's interesting when you think about this because God makes sure, he makes us understand that the gods that are worshiped, okay, that are, for instance, the Bible says that Satan is called a God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, 
verses 4, 3 and 4 actually, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, says, if our gospel is hidden, it's hidden because the God of this world has blinded the minds of those that believe not, lest the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine unto them. So Satan is called the God of this world. It just means he has authority, okay? It doesn't mean he is the uncreated creator of all things. The apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, before you knew God, when you worship those that are not gods, you know, he says that you worship those who are not gods by nature. Interesting. Catch him? Paul's saying they're not gods by nature. They're not by nature. There's only one God by nature. Only one who is the uncreated creator of all things. Amen? Amen. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, he talks, Paul talks about the so-called God, gods. He, goes, he says, yeah, they're so-called gods. And he goes, and there's, there, whether in heaven or on earth, there are gods many and lords many. But for us, there is but one God. Because they're called gods doesn't mean they are the God. Amen? It's important for us to understand this because as you're reading through the scripture, you can get confused when it says in the Psalms, you know, let the gods praise him. You're like, wait, I thought we believed in one God. Yeah, there's one true God. Okay? The judges are given authority and they're called gods. But they're judges. Oh, there's more than one judge? Yeah, there's more than one judge. But there's only one ultimate judge. Amen? who by nature is the creator of all things. So God's is sometimes, God, the word God's like, God says, to, God says to Moses, I'm gonna make you a God to Pharaoh. Did Moses become God? No, he's just, a, because he's just using God's authority, representing God to Pharaoh. Are you following this? So when you go through scripture, understand there's only one true God. The great Shema of Israel, hear O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said there is one God. Amen? Amen. Now as we look at this, it's important to understand that he's revealing himself as the one true God. And now he says the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, right? So when the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, who is the seed of the woman? Come on, guys. We all know it's Jesus. Now, he's going to choose. He, now, guess what Satan's going to try to do? If, if the seed that's going to crush his head is going to come through the woman. What's he going to try to do? He's going to try to destroy the seed. Amen? How's he going to try to destroy the seed? Destroy the human race. Man, if that seed's coming, it's going to crush my head because it was spoken to him. It's almost like smack talk. This is going down. You can't stop it, Satan. So he's going to try to pollute the human race, which he does right after this with sin just all over the world. The, like in the days of Noah, remember? There was violence covering the earth, lawlessness, right? Sexual perversion, People's thoughts were evil continually. Ah, oh, it sounds a lot like today, huh? Because Jesus said it'll be just like it was in days of Noah in the end times. And we're seeing those kinds of things take place right now. He corrupted the human race. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And he was blameless before the Lord. Now, some believe that term blameless there, because that word blameless is used over and over again of animal sacrifices that didn't have blemishes, is that Noah was one of those who was not corrupted through the sexual perversion of the sons of God that were with the daughters of men. And since he was blameless and he wasn't a corrupted entity, uh, that, that's why God chose him. Uh, that's a possibility, but I don't, I don't settle there and say that's definitely what's going on there because sometimes you can't always know the mind of God based on a certain word and how it's used. We do know this. I believe he was following the Lord blamelessly. Not absolutely perfect, but that he walked the straight and narrow. And... God preserved him in the flood so the seed of the woman could still come, right? And then, well, through 
One of his descendants comes, Abraham. God chooses Abraham. He says he's going to make a great nation out of Abraham, right? Abraham's told to leave, you know, to leave the, an area that was in, in Mesopotamia that was just beautiful, Ur of the Chaldees. That's the place that we, that's the only place we know of where they had like hot tubs 4,000 years ago in Abraham's day. It's like, you know, beautiful. He's told, leave that idolatry. Tamar, his dad was an idolater and he left. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Did God pull that off? Yeah. Abraham's descendant was Isaac. Isaac's descendant, descendant was Jacob. God over and over again says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was through the seed of the woman, and God is now taking a people to himself to protect them from Satan, through which he is going to bring the seed. Are you with me? It's really heavy. If you, man, you, if you want to learn anything, you want to learn this kind of stuff. You want to know what's going on. You want to know the big picture. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. By the way, what was Jacob's name changed to? Israel, right? Father, Abraham, Isaac nation. Abraham's the father of our faith. Israel, God would bring the Messiah through the seed of the woman through Israel. Amen. Now it's really heavy when you think about that because Satan tried to crush God's plan over and over again. I did a message years ago called Pulling Off the First Christmas. And I showed all these different ways where Satan tried to stop God's plan. Whether it was through Haman, remember that? Whole book, Esther, is devoted to Satan trying to squish God's plan there. Whether it was Balaam, right? Balak hiring Balaam to curse Israel, right? There's principalities and powers involved there. Now, when you look at this war, understand that when Jesus called Satan the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning who did not remain in the truth, Satan has a lot of power. Three different times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. It's about the world system. Three times. In, in 1 John 5, 19, it says, we know that we are of God, Christians, and the whole world, the whole world, Pontus, the whole cosmos, Pontus, cosmos, uh, is under the power, it says, is under the power of the evil one. You get to Revelation, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 12, verse 9. And it says that the, the great dragon was cast out. Then it says the old serpent or serpent of old, depending on your translation. And it says, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out and his angels were cast out with him. In that same chapter, it talks about how he took a third of the stars with him. Stars represent angels in the book of Revelation. A third of the angels or more rebelled against him. And that's when he's being cast to the earth, right? Now he's already been cast out of heaven in the sense that he doesn't have, that he has only access to heaven, but it's not his home anymore. Where's he at? He goes and he rats. He's, he's the biggest rat ever, man. He's a narc. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's not, oh, I'm a Satanist. Oh, you, you worship the biggest tattletale ever, huh? Biggest narc ever, huh? That's what he is. He's, he's a narc. He, he tries to get people to fall. Then he says, look, dad. But it's not his dad. God's not his dad, amen. Look, look what he did, you know? Kind of, how can you worship something like that, you know? Bizarre. If anybody would worship something, someone so ungodly and uncool, actually. Satan's the uncoolest being in the universe, okay? Look at his works. Murder from the beginning, liar from the father of lies, and so forth. But it's interesting because uh, when you go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus, says, Jesus said that hell 
was created for the devil and his angels. And you know the word devil means is diabolos in the Greek? And diabolos means slanderer. He slanders people. That's his deal. Okay? Nothing cool about, the, about Satan. People make pacts with the devil. He just, he's just waiting to destroy you. He has, he's full of hatred. In fact, it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober. It's important to be sober. Be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And lions are very patient. And they'll size you up, right? And they'll devour you. But Peter says, resist him. That is the devil. Resist him steadfast in the faith. You have to resist the enemy in the faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word, amen? You need to be in God's word so your faith can grow. You need to walk in faith. Trust the Lord because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. If God be for us, who could be against us? We are more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us, amen? What an awesome God we have. Now, it's interesting because uh, hell was created for the devil and his angels, but guess what? Satan wants to bring as many people down with him as possible. And I told you, this is a co- we're, we're watching this is a, what's going on, on earth right now with Satan and the angels. God could have wiped him out, but he allows it to happen because it's a cosmic sting operation whereby he allows Satan to manifest these temptations because God's good. God doesn't tempt anyone. The Bible says there's no shadow of turning in him, that he's perfectly good. The Bible says he, can't, he won't tempt you and he can't be tempted himself. He's perfect. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. It's imperative that we understand these truths. So it's interesting that what Satan does, though, is the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, the first couple of verses, that he's a prince in the power of the air. And he's a spirit that works through the children of disobedience. He uses human, uses human beings. And he guides, it says, the course of this world. So when I became a Christian, those scriptures just popped out at me. Wow. You'll, if you watch They Sold Their Souls for Rock and Roll, you'll see I use those types of scriptures because I expose what the enemy is doing through popular artists by their own admissions. Often people you wouldn't even expect are often being used by the evil one. And it says that he guides the course of this world. He uses... As a prince of power of the air, he uses the children of this world, children of disobedience, children that are in rebellion to God. And when I realized what was going on in my life when I was involved in the occult, I cried out to God. God, have, God you know, I just, first time I didn't even, it was the weakest prayer ever. You know, only if this is good, my experience, it stopped right away. Only goodness. And then the next time it happened, I couldn't even, I still couldn't cry out with my mouth, couldn't open my mouth, I was paralyzed, going through the Billy Eilish stuff, you know. And then I cried out my heart. You know, God, and stopped again. I knew God was real. I knew Satan was real. I knew God was the answer and that Satan was a liar. And I knew this book was from the word of God because that's the book that was being attacked through the channel that I was doing. And as soon as I opened this book, it just spotlight on the enemy. He's all naked. You know, like, whoa, this is so real. It's a spiritual war that we are in. And then we're told in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, the Bible commands us as Christians. You know the Bible commands you this, brothers and sisters? It says to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them. What does it mean not to have fellowship with the works of darkness? What could you identify in your life that Satan might tempt you with that's a work of darkness? Drugs, alcohol, past friends that are not walking with Jesus, right, Eddie, that are anti-Christ. Uh, yeah, things like that. A lot of the entertainment you have to be careful of. But it says not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Why would God want us to expose them? Because we're not to be ignorant, 2 Corinthians 2.11. 
says we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. God doesn't want us to be ignorant of what Satan is doing. So he wants us to expose the works of darkness. And also in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, says, be strong in the Lord and the dunamis or the power of his might. Then it says in verse, that's verse 10. Then verse 11 says, put on the full or the whole armor of God that you may stand against the wiles of or the devices, depending on your translations, of the devil. He has devices. He has wiles. What are wiles? The Greek word there is methodeia. And methodeia, guess what word we get from methodeia? Methods. That's right, Lindell. Methods. And that's where the English word methods comes from. That the New Testament was written in Greek. And Satan has methods, ways of thinking about deceiving you. Way back in Genesis, man, we see his, he used those things over and over again, but he has all kinds of methods. Well, how do we have, do, what kind of opportunity, I mean, chance do we have? Well, you got to be on your guard. Because the very next verse, that's verse 11. Then verse 12 says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, it says, it goes on to say, therefore, make sure you stand. Put, in, put, on, put on the full armor of God that you may stand in the evil day. Because guess what? There's an evil day coming in your life. Did you know that? You don't even know when it's coming. It could be tomorrow. A very, very evil day coming into your life. Could be next week. Could be months from now. Could be a couple years from now. A few years more. Because we all have an evil day from time to time, don't we? Where Satan just, remember, did Job have an evil day? Did Job have an evil day? Yeah, considerably evil. Well, that's the Old Testament. Hey, in James chapter 5, it says consider, James chapter 5, the Lord says consider Job. It's interesting because he said to Satan, and he kicked the whole thing off, have you considered my servant Job? Now he says to us as Christians, consider Job and the prophets. I want you to consider him and how he had victory. Amen. Job had, now Job got waylaid for a while. He was very, very confused. And you could go through those times in your life. But he never cursed God. Amen. He cried out to him. And he, he and God was patient with Job. He went through some troubled times. But he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. If you don't have the full armor of God on, brothers and sisters, you're going to get wiped out. You're no match for the devil. You against Satan in the demonic world. No, the Bible says that we are, that angels are greater than us. It says that in 2 Peter chapter 2. It says that in the book of Jude. They're more powerful than us. You can't match up against Satan. He's a heavyweight and we're lightweights, big time, compared to him. That's why we have to put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, which is, that's what it mentions, it mentions these different pieces of armor, which is called the hope of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians, Ephesians 6, it's called the helmet of salvation. But in 1 Thessalonians, it says put on hope as a helmet. It talks about of salvation. And the context there is a future salvation that, re, that saves us from the wrath to come. Amen? So we're supposed to stay focused on finishing the race and looking forward to see Jesus. Amen? And be with him forever. It says to put, take up the shield of faith, whereby you, need to, you will extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. What does that mean? That means that there's fiery darts being slung at you from Satan. You get thoughts coming to your mind to, be, to tempt you. You get the enemy trying to suggest this, that, or the other about the direction you should take in your life. And he wants to bring you into darkness away from Christ. He wants to say to you, hey, listen, you want to be cool. You want to fit in, don't you? You don't want to be a Christian. You won't fit in, man. Just go with the flow. 
Dead fish float downstream, guys. Okay? Don't go with the flow. In fact, when it says that Satan is the prince of power of the air, the spirit that's working the children of disobedience, guy in the course of this world, that word course in the Greek is weather vane, which would be used on a on a, on a barn, right? And would just go with the flow, go with the wind. And that's what Satan does. He's, a lot of the fads, a lot of what's popular, a lot of what's going on in the world is generated from principalities and powers. So we want to make sure that we take up the shield of faith and look to Jesus and trust him and follow him so we don't fall prey to the darts that enemy shoots at us, amen? There's an old saying that you can't keep Birds from flying around your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. How many of you have a nest in your hair that Satan's built? Or you're just having all these wicked thoughts all the time and you just go with them. Woo, you're in big trouble, man. Take the shield of faith, man. First you cast down those thoughts. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ, bringing a thought bringing every thought captive to Christ. Amen? So we're supposed to bring our thoughts captive to Christ and cast down our imaginations and high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Okay? This is a message on spiritual warfare. You have to be very careful that you don't have a rat's nest or, or a bird's nest with a bunch of rats in it going on, spiritual rats, that is, going on in your head. There is a spiritual battle going on. And then he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Amen? Protects your heart. First and foremost, Christ's righteousness, amen? We're saved by what he did on the cross and through trusting him, amen? If our hearts condemn us, it says he's greater than our hearts, amen? And then as we walk in the righteousness of Christ, we're protected from falling into evil. And the feet, it says, shod or prepared with the gospel of peace. Are your, do you have the gospel shoes on, man? They, had, they, had, they were like cleats, man. Because he's talking about the Roman armor. He's using that as a metaphor or picture for spiritual armor. And the Romans would put these shoes on and they had spikes on them, man, like cleats. So they could fight. And so someone could dislodge them from their stance. And guess what? When you are putting Jesus first and you're about the gospel and you're about the, you know, getting people saved by praying and, and witnessing and sharing the gospel and, you, and you're a true evangelical Christian where you're like, I'm about Jesus and wanting to know him and make him known. And that's your life about going forward in Jesus you're not going to follow in the quagmires and the quicksands of the enemy because you're going to be on the narrow path that leads to life and not the broad road that leads to destruction. Doesn't mean you won't struggle. Doesn't mean you won't fall ever, but it means that, guess what? The righteous man falls seven times and he gets up, amen? Okay? It means you're going to persevere in your faith as you take up the whole armor of God. It says take the belt of truth, amen? The belt would hold all the armor together. You need God's word, a coherent biblical worldview an understanding of all these, of these different things. Where basically the Bible says to put on Christ in, in Romans chapter 14, it says to put on the armor and it says, it talks about putting on Christ. In Ephesians 6, when it talks about putting on the armor, it also talks about putting on Christ. You're basically putting on Jesus because every piece of armor I've mentioned so far, it's related somehow to the truth of his word and who he is. Amen? Amen. And you're supposed to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word, word of God. Amen? The Spirit breathed the Word of God, okay? It's, it's breathed by the Lord God, and by His Spirit, He moved through the prophets, and He inspired the Holy Word of God. So we take up the sword of Spirit. Now, did Jesus use the Word of God when He was tempted by Satan? Yes or no? How many times did Satan tempt Him? Three, as far as the wilderness, when He is in the wilderness, amen? 
All three times, what did Jesus do? He quoted what? He quoted the Bible. Now, if Jesus Christ needs to use the word of God as a sword against the devil, how much more do I need to use it? Amen. How much more do you need to use it? Amen. We need to be in. Now, you, you can't quote scripture if you don't know scripture. Well, I just wait for something to come to my mind. and God will give me something. And thus saith the Lord. Well, you're just making up stuff then. Okay. You don't know if it's from the Bible. If it's not from the Bible, well, maybe it will be. No, that's not going to work. You're just going to be destroyed. You're going to fall into Satan's lies. You need to be in God's word. And that's why we study. That's why when we come together and we get together in this fellowship, what do you hear coming out of me constantly? The word of God. Okay. And you can tell it's in my heart. A lot of it's just in my mind, in my heart, because I meditate on the scripture. Okay. I'm nothing. I'm no one. I'm saying this to say I have to be saturated and immersed in God's word. Because when I became a Christian, I realized it's a spiritual war. And I had to put on the full armor of God so I could stand in the evil day. Amen. And there's a real evil day coming up. You know, tribulation, you know, it's going to get really gnarly. And we need to make sure we're strong. Now, it's interesting because when we talked about the name of this message is God against the demon gods. Well, guess what happened in the book of Exodus right after Genesis? Abraham's left the land of Ur, his population, he, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, right? They're growing. Joseph, God uses Joseph to save the, basically the world. He's a picture of Jesus as uh, he becomes like the right-hand man to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh, after he's in the land sometime during the famine, after the famine, you know, his brothers hang out there and they live there and they produce children and so forth. Everything is cool for a period of time until they, their numbers grow. And then a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph says, oh, look at all these Hebrews that are here. We could use them as slaves, as slave labor. And the Hebrews were enslaved, okay? There's modern slavery going on to this day. But there were Hebrews that were enslaved, mass, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of them, maybe up to three million. We don't know exactly the exact number, but a lot of them. And you know what? God said he wasn't going to bring them into the promised land until the wickedness of the Canaanites had reached its level, right? And it hadn't reached its level. But now it was reached. And it was ready for, God was ready to bring them out of the, out of the house of bondage, out of the house, house of slavery. But Pharaoh, was he this really nice guy? Did he say, Moses, you know, go talk to Pharaoh and he's a super cool dude. And he'll say, yeah, you can have, you know, your people back. And Moses found out he was a Jew. He was in Pharaoh's court. He made a long story, right? I don't have time to get into the whole story. But he's, God chooses him to go and take his people. How do you, dis, how, do you how does one guy named Moses, who could barely talk in his words, you know, so I can't talk. How does he go and get Pharaoh to let go of all those people? God's going to be with him. God. He goes, I don't know how to talk. I'll send Aaron with you, okay? Okay, but I'll be with your mouth, he says. And when you say, I don't know how to witness, God will be with your mouth. Just pray, God, use me. Amen? Please use me, and he will give you strength, and he'll give you wisdom. Amen? So Moses goes in to talk to Pharaoh. But there's some interesting things that are going on. When God commissioned Moses, the Lord said to him, when he commissioned him, when Moses said, who do I say sent me? He says, say, I am that I am sent you. In the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's ego amy hoan. Ego amy. That's the term Jesus would use of himself over and over again. Before Abraham was, Jesus says, ego amy, I am. Well, guess what? In the burning bush, the Lord says, I am that I am has sent you. Yahweh, 
you know, the self-existent one. Because he's the true God. And the Egyptians were worshiping all kinds of false gods. And there's all kinds of false gods that are made popular today. Okay? Including the Egyptian gods. Right? There's a movie coming out in July of 2022 uh, called The Black Adam. The Rock's going to play the part. And he does the Shazam deal. You know, you know uh, Captain Marvel, Shazam, you know Shazam, S-H-A-Z-A-M, you know all those letters stand for different Greek gods that are empowering him. Do you know that? That's, that's why mm, you got to watch out for this kind of stuff. But the Black Adam, he's calling on Egyptian gods because he was an anti-hero and he wanted to send the power and he broke the neck of Pharaoh after he got power from the wizard of Shazam of different Egyptian gods. And now that'll come out in July and the rock will be relying on the power of different Egyptian gods. Well, should we be promoting these gods? The Bible says this. It says in Psalm chapter 95, verse 6, it says that all the gods, and this is in the uh, Septuagint translation, all the gods of the nations are demons. But the Lord made the heavens. Okay? In uh, Psalm 137, the scriptures, it's very clear. It says they sacrificed their sons and their daughters. They, they even, it's talking about Jews going back to the false gods after they're delivered from Egypt. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Wow. It says they even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. And then it goes on to say, uh, and shed innocent blood. Then he emphasizes it and says, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the gods of Canaan, and they polluted the land with their blood. So, and then you have in Deuteronomy 31, when it talks about Israel again and their, their apostasy, says they sacrificed the demons, not to God. To gods that they did not know, okay? To new gods, new arrivals that their fathers did not fear. So Satan will take the old gods and he'll take the new gods. He'll just take whatever gods. If he can get you to worship a stump, if he could get you to worship a rock, Whatever he can use to distract you. If he can get you to put a sports hero before God. If he can get you to put a celebrity, an actor, or an actress, or a rock star, or a Marvel superhero, or anything before God, and distract you where you're thinking, oh, I love this. And you're talking more about these things than God, then Satan wins. Idolatry isn't just bowing down and worshiping. The Bible says men will be lovers of self more than lovers of God in the last days. Last days, terrible times will come. Men will be lovers of self we're lovers of God. They'll be lovers of pleasures, it says. It says that we lovers of self. Then it goes on to say more than lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. Pleasure, self, you know, your car could be your God. Some of you guys, you know, shave your God in the morning when you wake up. As you look in the mirror, you're first. Don't be first. Put Jesus first in your life. Make sure he's first in your life. Or some of you gals put makeup on your God when you wake up. Okay, I gotta be fair, right? Okay, you know. I'm always picking on the guys more than the girls. Just saying we got to be careful, amen, that we put the Lord God first. So guess what he says to go in the land of Egypt? And he says to them that they are to confront, Moses, confront Pharaoh. Guess what he's going to do? God says in chapter 7, verses 4 and 5 of Exodus, he's going to stretch forth his hand. And when he stretched forth his hand, he's going to deliver the children of Israel. He's going to deliver his people from Egypt. And that people are going to know that he's the one true God. That's an act of mercy. Over and over again, he says he's going to make it clear that he's the one true God through these miracles. 
Moses, don't worry, I got your back. I'm gonna be doing these miracles. And he's not gonna just show he's the one true God because he loves people. He loves the Egyptians too, amen? He wants them to know who the true God is because in John chapter 17, verse four, it says this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Because if you're following false gods, the, book of the scriptures say in Jeremiah chapter 10, I think around verse 11 or so, that all the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from under the heaven and from the earth. You wanna make sure you know the one true God. And so in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, you know what he says? <laughs> he says, the Lord says that he is going to execute judgment against the Egyptian gods too. So think about it. When you go through the 10 plagues against Egypt, do you know what's going on there? There's judgments being executed against all their, so many of their different gods. You know, they worshiped the Nile God. The Nile God's name was Hopi. H-A-U-P-I is our transliteration. They worshiped Hopi. And Hopi was a blue god because Hopi was the god of the Nile, the blue water. And they worshiped Hopi. Instead of the, you should be worshiping the creator who created everything, but they're worshiping a God because they're not, they're blinded to the one true God and they're worshiping Hopi. And guess what the Lord God does? He turns the Nile into what? Blood. He says, I'm the creator and you don't appreciate what I've given you. And the Egyptians really, guys, you need to understand this. The Egyptians relied radically on the Nile because it was so arid, they didn't get rain there. So the Nile would get flooded, Right? And it would flood and swell so much that when it receded, there was all this sediment and you know, nutrients laid down, minerals. So the farmers would rush in and they'd plant their crops. But now it's turned to blood. Oh, and they also worshiped the frog-headed god, Heket. God went after the Heket in the second plague. Frogs. You want frogs? You want to worship a frog-headed god? Here's a bunch of frogs. Frogs everywhere, man. Frogs in your bed, frogs in your soup, frogs everywhere. They probably got disgusted thinking of Heket, you know? And then there's the third god, the god Geb. The Egyptian god Geb was the god of the earth, you know? The land, the, the dust. Oh, you want to worship Geb? God turned the dust of the ground into lice. And there's swarms of lice, and lice everywhere on their bodies, you know? And, you know... So much for Geb being your God, okay? So they're worshiping all these different strange uh, gods and they worship Kepri. Kepri was a fly-headed God. Can you imagine worshiping a God with a frog's head and another God with a fly's head? Just so weird. And they worship Kepri and then guess what? God says, okay, you want flies? You like fly gods? Boom, <laughs> swarms of flies all over them. You know what? I sometimes save critters. I'm kind of, I, I got it. I'm sorry, I'm partial with certain insects like crickets. I always try to save a cricket, you know. But flies, man, flies. We came home after we went to New York and did some ministry and there were so many flies when we got home, you know. And Josiah was the only one home and I don't know what was left out or in the garage or something. And it was like for the next two weeks there were like flies all over the windows and stuff in the, in the kitchen and stuff. And man, I have an assault rifle. I, did, I, I killed probably 150, 200 flies easy. Something like that. Not a assault, assault rifle. It's called a salt, meaning it has salt in it. And the salt comes out and just kills the fly. You know, where they work really, really good. I think that came from Jevin sent that to me. That was a blessing. But you know what? God basically, here, I'm in control of the flies. 
I'm, I'm the true God. I'm in control of everything. And I could call out the flies. The fourth, the fifth God, the first plague, God killed all their livestock. And that was against Hathor. Hathor was a, <laughs> uh, Kepri, by the way, and, and he, uh, he kept, those are both goddesses. I'm just using the term gods generically, you know. But Hathor was the cow-headed God, and God killed the livestock. And also God of protection. Boom, dead, okay? Just, they're all over. You wanna, I'm the one that gives you your steaks. I'm the one that gives you your, your ribeyes. I'm the one that gives you your beef. And you're worshiping a cow-headed God? No, I'm in control of everything. But keep in mind, in the midst of this, God is saying, let my people go. Let my people go. And Pharaoh is not letting his people go. And God had hardened his heart. Well, the first three times it mentions Pharaoh's heart being hardened, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. If you look at the narrative, he got really upset and he hardened his heart. Well, how does God harden his heart? Does God partially go in and say, I'm just going to damn you and I'll give you an opportunity and mystically go in and harden his heart? No. He knew the kind of person that Pharaoh was. He rose him up as Pharaoh because he knew exactly how he'd react and would give God an opportunity to show that he's the one true God so people could be saved. Amen? God could have made Moses Pharaoh. Moses was the humblest guy on earth. And God could have said, okay, Moses, now that I've made you Pharaoh, let all my people go. And Moses would have said, okay, <laughs> sure, God, one miracle's enough, you know? But the people wouldn't have agreed with that. <laughs> he would have been a Pharaoh that would probably be, have been rejected, you know? And they went, God wouldn't have been able to show his power and show the Egyptians who the one true God is. Or give the Israelites an understanding of who their God is, amen? And how powerful he is when they go into the land of Canaan and they realize, don't turn to those gods because I've shown you I'm the one true God, amen? So a lot going on there. So it's really interesting. So uh, the next God, uh, the, the sixth God is Isis. You probably heard of Isis. Madame Blavatsky, one of those leaders of the New Age movement in the past. She wrote a book called Isis Unveiled, an Egyptian goddess. Uh, she was a goddess of healing, of medication and medicines. So guess what God does? Boils all over your body. You could pray to Isis all you want, but guess what? You're not getting healed, are you? Because she's not God. She's a false God. She's a goddess that's not real. The next God was, was Nuit. Nuit was the God of the sky. And she's depicted, I've seen many pictures of her in the past, where she's like bent over the earth like the arcing sky. And God said, okay, you want to worship the sky instead of me and the goddess of the sky? Guess what? Locust. All kinds of locusts throughout the sky. Yeah, and there's some darkness because locusts, because it'd be pretty dark. And that goddess is just basically thrashed. You know, the worship of her. Locusts, man, eating up your crops and so forth. What a bummer. Then the next god, the eighth god, was the god Set. Set was, uh, many scholars, you know, believe he was the manifestation of evil in Egyptian society. He was a god of storms and so forth. In fact, uh, some Satanists worshipped Set because he was a dark god. Uh, and uh, the temple of Set was started by a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Aquino. Yeah, high-ranking guy who used to belong to uh, Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. And he published the, he was the one that put together the cloven hoof for Anton LaVey. Then he started his own satanic church called the Temple of Set. Well, Set was the storm god. And the god, the, the true, one true god, the creator of all things says, no, guess what? I'm, in, I'm the weatherman, amen? I'm in control of the storms. And he rains down hail mixed with fire in the eighth plague. Amen? 
Then there's the ninth plague, right? And you got it, my young brother. That one was darkness coming up right there, man. And God made it so dark that you couldn't even see your hand, that it was darkness that could be felt. How eerie would that be? You could feel the darkness. God just, just took away all his light, amen? Total darkness for three days. Didn't matter how much they prayed. And who was the sun god? Their main chief god is the most popular Egyptian god, Ra, okay? Ra is just totally blotted out, nowhere to be found. God's, you see, you have God up in the ante every time. And not just Ra, but also Horus. Because you see, the sun was considered to be Horus's eye, his right eye. And his left eye was the moon. And the moon is dimmer than the sun. And they made up a story where Horus was in a fight and his left eye got plucked out. That's why the moon is not so bright. It's all mythology, guys. The, the word of God has a narrative and it's historical and you can prove it, amen, over and over again. And guess what? You know, Ra and Horus were often coupled together as being the same God. Uh, as be, they fused together at times in Egyptian history. And the Lord is basically saying, hey, Ra's not God. Horus is not God. I'm God. And it took the 10th plague to really move Pharaoh's heart enough to where he let the people go. And the 10th plague was against all kinds of gods because Pharaoh was considered to be the embodiment of Ra and Horus and other Egyptian gods. And he was like the chief god because he was embodied and possessed by these other chief gods. And guess what? God brought death upon the firstborn. Amen? Pharaoh was firstborn. And anybody else is firstborn in Egypt who did not do what? The Passover, the angel of death would pass over your home. Boom, kill your firstborn kid. Firstborn son. Next house, firstborn son. Unless you applied the blood of a lamb that was sacrificed. And by the way, did you know everybody sacrifices either an animal or a vegetable to live or a fruit? Without a fruit dying or a vegetable dying or an animal dying, you can't live. You know that? That's kind of interesting, huh? But for, spir for spiritual purposes, they would eat the lambs, but the lamb that was killed had to be perfect, without blemish. It had to be a full-grown male. And you'd have to take the blood of that lamb, remember? And you'd have to put it on the doorpost, right? So you have to put it on the doorpost over here, boom, doorpost over here. Then you have to put it at the lentil, right? At the top of the door. And of course, the blood would drop, and that would make a what? The form of a cross. Did you guys get that? You were basically painting a cross, you know, connect the dots over your house, and the death angel would pass from the lamb, right, would pass over your house and not kill the firstborn. That was a prophecy of the fact that Jesus, the lamb of God, would come, amen, to save us from our sins if we're covered by the blood of the ultimate lamb of God, amen. Therefore, we're not, we don't have to experience God's wrath. God's doing a lot of heavy stuff. We have such a heavy, heavy God. Amen. And the firstborn is killed in Pharaoh's home and he's just sunken now. If he wasn't so proud, the Bible says pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Don't be proud, brothers and sisters. Bow the knee to the Lord or you'll be going to have a huge fall coming and many of them and you'll be fallen forever if you don't repent. So what's crazy about this, it's amazing about this is finally Pharaoh lets him go, right? And they take off. And then he changes his mind. 
And he chases them at the Red Sea and their backs are to the wall. And then God opens up the Red Sea and they go through the Red Sea on dry ground. Could that really happen? God created the universe. That's an easy thing for God to do, okay? You realize that, right? You create the universe, any other miracle after that's easy. <laughs> Amen? The two hardest things I think that the Lord did that we know about was creating the universe. That's the most radical work second to only one other, which is redemption, Christ's death on the cross for us. That was really hard to the point of Jesus crying heavily in Hebrews 5. We read about that in the Gospels. Even hematrodosis, his blood, his capillaries popping and blood oozing out, which forensic science tells us that's a phenomenon. Only a handful of people, just over 100 people that they know in history have experienced. And it's right there in the Bible. It says that's what happened as he was praying to the Father about going to the cross because he was going to have to bear the sins of the world. That seems like that was a lot harder than creation to me. Just my opinion. I'm not sure, but it seems like it. Now, check this out. He destroys the Egyptian army. And by the way, who leaves Egypt? The Israelites, but did they leave alone? No, it says it was a mixed multitude. A bunch of the Egyptians said, we want to follow Yahweh. He's the true God. Isn't that cool? He's the creator of all people. He loves all of us. Red, brown, yellow, black, or white. We're all precious in his sight. We all can have the cross over our hearts. Amen. So then we see that he is the that's why I called this message God against the demon gods. Because then you go to Isaiah chapter 43 and the people are worshiping Moloch. The, the Jews are worshiping Baal. They're worshiping the false Canaanite gods. And you forget your past generations, what's happened sometimes. And you're not paying attention to God's word. And that's what's happened with many professing Christians today. Then their children grow up and they don't know God because they fall for the idols of this world. Make sure that you're following the one true God. And you know what the Lord says in Isaiah 43.10? That's where he says, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, that before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. There's only one true God, right? And then he says how they're his witnesses in the next chapter. In Isaiah 44.6, he says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and last. Beside me there is no God. And then he goes on to say that these false gods cannot tell you the future. And I not only tell you the future, you're my witnesses, but I've established my ancient nation. In other words, look back and see what I did in establishing you. I brought you out of Egypt, amen? I fulfilled all those things I said that I would do, amen? amen. And then the very next chapter, chapter 45, right after that, the first few verses, he talks about how he's going to rise up a king named Cyrus. And that he's going to use this king named Cyrus, right? A Persian king to deliver them from captivity. You know, read Isaiah 45. King Cyrus is given, even his name is given. You know why, guys? That's 100 years before King Cyrus was born. That's a blow mind. And guess what? You can read about King Cyrus setting the Jews free in any secular encyclopedia. And then in chapter 46, the very next chapter, verse 10, he says, I make known the end from the beginning. Right? Wow. I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times, things that are still to come. I speak or I say and I declare my purpose and it will stand. And he says, and I will do everything I please. That's a powerful God, amen? Then you get in the New Testament times and guess what? You have the worship again of false gods. But you have the Christian church established because Jesus Christ, amen, 
comes to die on the cross. He comes as God in the flesh, and he comes and lives a perfect life. And he dies on the cross to pay for our sins, amen. He rises from the dead proving that he's the one true God. And you know that God of the Old Testament, he said, I am that I am. And he shows Moses exactly who he is because he says all these things that's going to happen in Egypt. It happens, amen. And Moses is like, he is the I am that I am, right? And then Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. When he's being arrested, they say, are you the one? He says, I am. And the Roman soldiers get knocked on the rear end by an infusion of power, you know. And then guess what? When he rises from the dead, doubting Thomas sees that what he said would happen would come to pass. Because Jesus said, when you see what I'm saying, when it takes place, you will know that I am. Then Thomas, who's doubting, sees the resurrected Christ. He falls down before him and says, the Lord of me, the God of me, or my Lord and my God. He recognizes that he is the I am. Really, really, really profound. And then when you get to the book of Acts, chapter 17, now the apostles are sharing the gospel of the one true God. And that's what we should be about today because the world is filled with idols. People worship sports stars. People worship actors and actresses. People worship rock stars. People worship superheroes. People worship money. People worship themselves. They worship their cars. They worship, or they just put things, everything before God. And we ought not let that happen, amen? The Lord God needs to be first in our lives because the Bible says that all idolaters will go to the lake of fire, Revelation 21.8. Make sure God is first in your life. Your life. The Lord says he's a jealous God and he will have no gods before him, amen? It's imper- imperative. I challenge you, make sure in the name of Jesus that you're putting the one true God first. And then as he's going through Athens, he's going through Athens, Greece. Athens, full of idols. Okay? Xenophon, who lived a few hundred years before Christ or so, he said that Athens was one huge altar to the gods. And it's interesting because with Paul, it says of Paul, as he's going through Athens, he's jealous for God's glory, amen? And it says he was greatly distressed because Athens was full of idols. Pausanias, who was a second century, not long after Paul, traveler and geographer, he said of Athens, he said that there were more uh, gods in Athens than there were the rest of Greece put together. Okay, and Pliny, the philosopher, the Roman philosopher of the first century, he said there were like 30,000 gods, 30,000 gods just in Athens. Right? Wow. And Petronius said it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. You know? It was just packed. But you know what Paul says to the Stoics and the Epicureans who thought they were just so wise and so forth? If in most of our translations, he says, I see that you're very religious. But the word isn't, does, it's not very religious in the Greek. Although you could translate it that way because maybe it meant that in the first century. But the word is a strange kind of word. It's, it's, it's a, a desi daimon esteros. I know it's a long, weird Greek word, okay? Okay, desi daimon esteros. And the word has, in the middle of the word, is the word daimon, which is related to the word demon. And Paul is saying, I see that you're a bunch of daimon worshipers. Now, a daimon for the Greeks were, uh, you know, sub-gods. They were small gods, you know. They were so many gods, and they were spirit guides, and people that, of valor who had died, and, and, and others that they made gods, and, you know, the Greek gods that they worshipped, and so forth. Demigods, right? But we already noticed that Paul 
understands exactly what he's saying, right? Because he doesn't use the word theos, the normal Greek word for God. He uses the word daimon, which is a more unusual word for gods, small gods, little g gods that they're worshiping. And we already know what Paul thinks of that because he says, what am I saying that uh, food sacrifice is anything or the Nile is anything, right? He says, no. What I'm saying is that what the Gentiles sacrifice, they don't sacrifice to God. They sacrifice to demons. And I don't want you to be a partner with demons. So Paul knew exactly what he was dealing with. That's why he was so distressed because the, the Athens was full of demon worship. Are we learning tonight? Okay, so Paul deals with them and he preaches the one true gospel, the one true God. He lets them know there's only one true God and God has winked at King James or overlooked NASB. Your ignorance from the past and your worship of all these gods, he says. But he's appointed a day in which he's gonna judge the world in righteousness and truth by the man Christ Jesus who he furnished evidence that he rose him from the dead. And he told them to put their faith in him. And some of these guys turned to Christ in faith. And brothers and sisters, we live in a period of time when the United States is full of idols. Oh, they may not be the same gods that the Egyptians worshipped and the Greeks worshipped, although Marvel and DC are doing a pretty good job in resurrecting a lot of those gods, by the way. But like I said, they're the gods of self, they're the gods of money, the gods of ambition, the god of pride, the gods of drugs, where drugs come before God. Gods of sexuality, of sex, and putting sex before God. How do you know when you're putting something before God? When you're disobeying him and you're cherishing a sin that you refuse to give up. That shows what kind of God you have in your life. And we need to repent. And what's heavy is when you get to the book of Revelation, and I've realized now looking at the clock, I've gone along. I'll just end with this. In the book of Revelation, it's a judgment on the gods. Because guess what you see all over again? You see a Pharaoh, but not just in Egypt. He's the Antichrist, and his heart's hard, and he blasphemes God. You see not Moses and Aaron. You see the two witnesses, and they do all kinds of miracles and bring all kinds of plagues, including turning water into blood. You look at the trumpet judgments, and you see hail mixed with fire. You look at the bowl judgments, and you see on the beast kingdom, it's great darkness. Sound familiar? And God gives his people, Revelation 12, the wings of eagles. That's the same expression used in Exodus when he protects his people in the land of Goshen. And he sets them free to go to the sea. And he brings his, his, the woman, which is Israel, into the wilderness. He, then Satan goes after believers. Okay? And we must be ready to be persecuted and have our whole, all the armor of God on. Amen? Because the war of the gods is still going. And guess what? Jesus brings those judgments. Why? Because he's a big meanie? No. Because he wants to bring judgment on the false gods again. Because he wants people to know that he's the one true God and that he's the king of kings, Revelation 19, when he comes back. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? So make sure you put your faith in the one true God. I'm sorry. I thought, I'm looking at the clock. I don't go this late. On, Thursday, on Wednesday nights, but I thought I'll just go, go preach a lot of stuff from memory and it'll probably be a quick message. I'm like, uh-oh, it wasn't. <laughs> okay, but did you get filled up today? Yeah. Put your faith in Jesus, man. What's that, bro? Drinking from the fire hose. 
Oh, praise the Lord, man. <laughs> Drinking from the fire hose. I want to encourage you guys. If you're an idolater, if you're putting someone or something before God, you need to repent because he's fixed a day of judgment. Amen? And, and we're going to be judged. The good news is this. Is in every other religion, you have to work and do a bunch of things to where God will finally accept you. But the difference is, is this. Remember that cross, the Passover, the death angel passed over and didn't bring judgment because the cross, the bloody cross was over the homes. Guess what? Jesus died, the ultimate lamb of God. And Jesus referred to as the lamb in the book of Revelation several times more. In the book of Revelation, multiple times more than the rest of the Bible put together. And by the way, when Isaiah said, I tell, God says, I tell the end from the beginning, he even says in Isaiah 53 that he's going to, there's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be rejected by his own people. Amen. And that he's by his, uh, he's going to be pierced for our iniquities. He's bruised for, I'm sorry, bruised for our iniquities, you know, pierced for our transgressions by our stripes. By his stripes, we are healed. Amen. That's all about Jesus. And he'll be like a lamb before his shearers, amen. He'll be cut off from the land of the living. He'll be a, a, an offering. It says, that's all in Isaiah 53. When he came on the scene, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist said, amen. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, uh, behold, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed or crucified for us, amen. Jesus is the lamb of God. Make sure you are covered by the lamb, the, the, blood's, the, the blood of the lamb, amen. Make sure when God sees you, he sees that you're, you've got that cross, spiritual cross over your heart, the blood of Christ, and your sins have been taken away. Otherwise, you will die in your sins, and you'll be separated in eternal darkness that can probably be felt forever and ever. You don't want to go there. You don't want to be lost. Make sure you're following Jesus. Amen? I love you guys. Let's all please stand.